All right. So um, we're we're closing off another uh, beautiful summer here in the city of Portland, Oregon. Um, that's a lie. We're in Colorado, but it feels like today it does. It feels like we've been living in the Pacific Northwest for the last three months. Because I cannot remember, you know, growing up here as a kid, we were always told that like afternoon storms during the summer are a thing, but it's not like something you expect to happen every day. But this year, I can't remember like a week, like a stretch of seven days where we haven't had not just rain, but like hardcore thunderstorms. There was a tornado yesterday. There was a tornado yesterday. (laughs) There was a tornado on Pikes Peak two weeks ago. Like, what the hell's happening? Yeah. What is this? It's crazy. I I actually think, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that statistically speaking, Denver had had higher rain totals than Seattle on the year. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I saw that too. And I'm pretty sure like in June... Parts of the state were reaching their like yearly records for rainfall in one month. Yeah, it took one month to get a year long record for rainfall. That's crazy. In one month, that's yeah, crazy. June, I mean, today I'm crazy. I'm listen. I'm thankful for it always because I'm not yeah. really a hot weather type of guy. I'm not usually either. And today it was sixty nine degrees. Yeah, it's like seventy degrees out right now. It's beautiful. We're driving in, it was perfect. Just it's like nice low fifties overnight. It's been great, man. It's been really, really nice. I love it. But also, like, it's just kind of weird. It's just weird it's to kind of weird to not have like because it get it can get hot and dry here. Usually, like in July, usually July for Colorado is very hot and very dry. And I thought, all right, we just had a ton of rain in June. Now we're gonna get like we're it's gonna the inverse is gonna happen here pretty soon. It never did. No, we had and like five days. Where the it was forecast. Like 95 for, I was worried. I was worried it was gonna be like August, August, September. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's gonna be blazing hot. Yeah. It's barely supposed to break 80 for the next two weeks here. I know. It's great. Which is so crazy. It's such a weird, it's such a weird thing to have to, to have to deal with. Because other years, it's literally like you're working out in the middle of the New Mexico desert all summer, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah, it's like, like building a nuclear bomb. July, August hit, you're like, am I in Los Alamos or am I in Colorado Springs? <laughs> that was a good transition. <laughs> we both got on the same track there. So I w- I mean I I just all tangents I just aside, went for it all tangents aside we are talking about our most anticipated movie of the year easily I think it was this has been our most anticipated movie of the year since 2022 well, we what movie was it that the first like teaser for Oppenheimer showed at yeah it was like a countdown um. Ooh. It wasn't even. It wasn't even a full trailer. Was it mm, Top Gun? Maybe. I, th- I think it was. Top it might Gun. have been Top Gun. Um, but we've been looking forward to this for for a long time. Long. A long time. Long time. And in more ways than one. A lot of really because the the marketing for this movie was done really well. You know, obviously, you know, it's based on a true story. It's based on a real person. So it's not like you're gonna like give anything away in the trailers, right? Yeah, and that's... Or, like, spoil what's going to happen. Which, honestly, if you do it right, plays into your favor for marketing a film. And so what these guys did is they marketed, like, the the type of... The effort it took to make it and that Chris Nolan was shooting exclusively on IMAX cameras and that they're actually recreating the bomb with however many... 
however many tons of C4 and like everything that happens in the movie is in camera, meaning there was no C- actual CGI right. used. Meaning they did use digital effects, but none of it was done without the camera shooting what was in front of it. Yes, a lot right. of the a lot of the publicity that the movie was getting leading up to release was just the fact that it well it wasn't the story that was being told it was how the story was being told. Right. And it's also it's kind of surprising and I'm sure that there have been attempts that I'm unaware of. Mm-hmm. It's kind of surprising that this story hasn't been told to this extent in the right. past. So we're talking about quite possibly <clears throat> I don't this might be exaggeration to say but yeah. quite possibly the most important person that has lived in the last it's what, far as at like, least 200 years if you define like modern history as anything that happens after like the industrial revolution say so like the late 1700s early 1800s i would say between then and now outside of like probably i mean probably hitler but just like hitler was a hitler was a notable figure because of how evil he was Oppenheimer exists in that same like echelon because of how much he impacted the future of of war, right? right? War forever changed because of Robert Oppenheimer and the people at Los Alamos. So it's a very a lot of influential things happened in the late 30s and early 40s and and Oppenheimer was one of those guys that was like at the at the forefront of it all. Right. And from what I read, there's this Twitter page called uh I think it's called All the Right Movies, and every week they do threads on um, uh, big films that rele- that were released in the past. They do like anniversary release threads, yeah, and they do like thirty to forty tweets about like the making of and what went into making certain movies. Like they've done all kinds of stuff, like Men in Black. Dark Knight, yeah, other Christopher Nolan projects, just you know, all these in a really, really cool, informative tweets. Probably one of my favorite pages on on Twitter that I found in the in recent years. And they were talking about Opp- they were talking about Oppenheimer last weekend in its second week of release. So apparently, this movie had been not in development, but people have been wanting to make it since two thousand five. Two thousand five was when. Um, the idea to make a movie about Oppenheimer kind of came to be. And I, it was around the time that the book American Prometheus was published. Right. Like that, when that book was published immediately, people were like, when is this going to be made into a movie? Because this seems like this is just the perfect groundwork to make a movie. And then it, it kind of fell apart. And then um, in 2018 or 19 was when Nolan kind of started you know, trying to option himself into it in, in one, you know, he actually wrote his own screenplay and then sent it to the authors of American Prometheus. Oh, for... And, like, to just, for, like, basically he said, like, I want you to be a part of this. Also, what do you think of what I've written? Yeah. Because he, Nolan himself, became obsessed with the character once he knew, once he had an angle that he knew, he was like, this is how I can shape the story yeah. is by knowing this fact about Oppenheimer and that's how the ball kind of got rolling in the late 2010s and became what the movie is now. And I don't know, I actually just read this recently. Um, I read it, it was, I don't know exactly what the interview was about, but just an interview with Chris Nolan about the film. Yeah. He said when he wrote the script, he wrote it in the first person, which is, is fascinating. Yeah. And that's... 
to his knowledge, that's not something that had really been done before. Right. Um, he was using kind of that not to, um, you know, not to blow his own horn, but he was he was using that as a way to give kudos to the actors because right. they he didn't adapt the script then for the actors. They read the script in the first, in the person, first person, yeah, and then adapted it themselves right. into the into the screenplay. And I think he wanted them to view the script and the story as if it were like this was purely a vehicle for Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer and they wanted everything to play out from his point of view. So the actors are reading this in the first person, recognizing that they're reacting almost solely based on Robert Oppenheimer's point of view. Yeah. Right. Well, which is such an interesting way to like give characters or give actors notes for their characters saying, you're going to read all of this from a first person perspective, which is completely abnormal. It, it, I don't think that ever happens with right. screenplays well, and then, in, in the modern times, at least. In essence, half the film is Oppenheimer's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the, you know, and Nolan kind of laid this out even before release that the the color portion of the film is the subjective version of the story. Right. That is Oppenheimer's view of how it all of happened. Of how it all happened. The right. black and white mm-hmm. is the objective, this is what happened. This, is really, ha- this really happened there at was, this time. There was very little, although some overlap between the two, where we would yes. see the same scene or the same setting at least in both versions. Right. Um, right. The, the, you know, mostly in that, um, throughout that, I guess, interrogation process. Yeah. Which is how this story is being told. They're using right. the hearing. Spoiler alert. Also, just for the rest of this right. episode. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, by the way. By the way. Um, they are using that hearing. Mm-hmm. And it was... It, it was kind of a witch hunt. Like really. a kangaroo court hearing. It really was. Right. They, you know, they set it up on purpose to feel like it was a court hearing, although right. there were no charges being pressed. Yeah. They were basically just trying to they were trying to get Oppenheimer to incriminate himself. Right. To make it easier, basically, to to not clear his security clearance. Exactly. And there was no there was no there weren't any crimes. Right being evidenced right there were no there was no actual crime there was like there were no accusations of criminal offenses yeah they mostly just wanted to use this for their political gain right um and then that's kind of the that's kind of the vehicle that drives this story right well that that drives the subjective point of view and a, a hearing also drives the objective point of view right with with strauss's character trying to get appointed to some cabinet in the in right. under it wasn't it might have been Eisenhower at the time. Both hearings take place in the fifties, right? Well yeah. after Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project are all finished, they take place at a time when like nuclear energy is becoming the main driving force behind nuclear science. Right. They're trying to figure out how to turn it into energy as opposed to weaponry. Granted, the weaponry itself is still very much a thing, but that's more. Um, I guess behind the scenes, the motivations what, are just the, a little. Yeah, bit the different. motivations are a little bit different. But the fact that both both timelines and both narrative both narratives are are driven by these separate hearings, all involving a lot of the same people, and a lot of the same moments in history. So where you do sometimes you get a, that little bit of overlap from each perspective. And the parallel again is that Strauss was not Strauss. Strauss. Sorry. 
They made that very clear. You get it right, Don. Strauss was not on trial. Right, right. All he it was, was was a confirmation, a confirmation for right. a, a committee that he was going to be on. Um, but once again, all of the questions being asked had their political leanings based off of what they were trying to accomplish. Basically, right. the all of this was about controlling the narrative that was going to be released to the right. public. They wanted to change the way that Oppenheimer was viewed by the public right. and the way that Strauss and his relationship with Oppenheimer right. were viewed as well. Well, and Strauss knows that he can use Oppenheimer's background as a... like To, to Strauss, what he's doing is personal, but he knows if he makes right. it personal, he can't... He can't get Oppenheimer out of the way. He has to use the political atmosphere and the political landscape to truly get Oppenheimer to push him out. And that's something... And, and change the, 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 the American's perspective of him, despite yeah. the fact that deep down, what Strauss is doing is very personal. He's, right. taking what, he's taking an interaction personal. That's what the whole basis for this is, is an interaction that he, Oppenheimer, and uh, Einstein... Had at some research facility, I think it was in like Harvard or some you know big Ivy League school, and that moment is purely what drives Strauss's yeah. desire to get Oppenheimer out of the way. And it right? and it kind of comes full circle at the end when Strauss's assistant essentially goes, he basically says, "It's not about you, right? Not everything is about you. Not, not everything is about not you. Not all of these conversations are about you because right. Strauss is convinced that the scientific community hates him. Hates him. Because of this conversation that Oppenheimer, that Oppenheimer had. had with Einstein. With Einstein. And his assistant yeah. just goes, maybe they didn't talk about you at all. Like, did right. you ever think about that? <laughs> yeah. That maybe they didn't have that discussion? And I think what was also interesting um, is that Strauss was using Oppenheimer's background as a way to kind of incriminate him there's i don't really right. know a, a better word for that um but oppenheimer was aware of that from the beginning oh, as yeah. well as some of his colleagues mm -hmm. now whether it was luck or just oppenheimer's um you know i guess his value as an asset to the project right some of his colleagues fell to the wayside or were right. forced to the wayside yeah he was able to stick around but they knew from the beginning that in the end, when they were no longer needed, their political backgrounds were going to be used to push them aside or to right. use as gain for other people. For other people. Such as Strauss. Such as Strauss, right. And it's something that's discussed very early on. I can't remember who who's discussing it with Oppenheimer, whether it's another scientist. It might have been Kenneth Branagh's character. He mm -hmm. plays... Um, he Well, actually, him and Einstein. Einstein and Oppenheimer talk about this because... You know, Einstein talks about like coming to America when he was, you know, he was of use to the to the to, yeah. to the Germans for a very long time, and then when he became useless to them, when he when he became a an opponent to their government's worldview, he became he became ostracized. He was, you know, he was basically he he, he had to flee Germany essentially mm -hmm. to escape that tyrannical rule, and he was just. Giving that parallel to Oppenheimer, saying like, "What makes you think you're any different from me?" And that idea, to the Americans, that right? idea played out for a lot of those scientists, and that was yeah. that was kind of a main point for all of them. Mm -hmm. Is they were basically kept around for as long as they were valuable, and right. even 
even that one, I forget. I wish I knew the names a little bit better. Um, he was a American scientist technically, but he was from Germany. Yes, the and, guy who and, the guy who developed the hydrogen bomb. And he was asked something along the lines of, like, when did you stop being German? Yes, and he said when Hitler told me I wasn't, or something along I those that. lines. Yeah, uh, and and that idea was used because a lot of the um, there was so many different backgrounds that came right. in for this project, so many different scientists from across right. the globe, um, and that's what added to a lot of the tension that. Um, what was, um, who was the general that was running this whole thing? Matt Damon's character. Matt Damon's character. You remember I don't his know. Name? I'm, I'm pulling up a cast list right now because okay. there are way too many real life names. There, yeah. I was going through after I watched the movie, speaking of this, and just looking at all like the different characters. Like, like Josh Peck is in this movie as a major, major scientist. Like, like so many people in this cast could have stories made about their... Kenneth Bainbridge. Josh Peck plays Kenneth Bainbridge, who's an American physicist from Harvard who worked on cyclotron research. His precise measurements of mass differences between nuclear isotopes allowed him to confirm Albert Einstein's mass-energy equivalence concept. This dude's like... He has like three <laughs> lines in the movie, but he did that for the scientific community. And there are 10 to 15 other people in this movie with yeah. name, attached to real-life names. And it's just, it's fucking crazy that these kind of people were who were involved in the Manhattan Project. Matt Damon plays General Leslie Groves. General Groves. General Groves, who, yes, kind of uh, is the the government or the military liaison for the 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 Manhattan Project. Like, he's, he's involved. He was the one who was involved with, like, getting people security clearances and actually getting the project and he himself was pretty skeptical of all oh yeah yeah he you know the the american side of this project um a lot of them as far as the government officials were were very untrusting of right everybody on this project and that and that comes to light over and over throughout throughout the the movie and what i what i love too is like groves you know, Damon as Groves, he realizes <clears throat> what what the the U.S. government is kind of getting themselves into with all these security clearances they're giving yeah. out, and it, it kind of comes to play during Oppenheimer's hearing in the in the mid fifties when Groves is is uh, interviewed. They ask him, you know, like, would you give him security clearance? Knowing what you know now, would you give him security clearance? And Matt Damon's character ultimately says, no. But I wouldn't have given any of these people security clearances, knowing what I know now. Right. Like, well, the, we, way, the way that they he was saying that. it, like he said it, like we knew what we were getting into. Right. We knew that we were taking risks with this. So of course I wouldn't. But that doesn't mean this is the only guy that I would say no to, and it doesn't mean that I would necessarily say no right now. Well, and it was, it wasn't even that he didn't trust them. The way that he worded it was, given today's regulations right. right given what we given what the rules are now right. right i wouldn't have given them clearance but it was also said over and over by even the people testifying against oppenheimer and this became a point of contention between him and his wife yeah all of these people said over and over again he is a dedicated american right he cares about his country right 
even the ones that were saying no, he shouldn't have clearance, or right, who were implying that he had ties to the Russians, right, to the to right to the Russian Communist Party, and that's one thing. One thing I think this movie does really, really well is it it takes a very it takes a very documentarian perspective on the entire situation. It doesn't really lean you one way or the other about what Oppenheimer's true intentions or feelings were. It leaves you not in the dark, but it just kind of presents all of these people as they were based on historic based on the historical accounts that they pulled from and just kind of lets you decide what you think. Right? It focuses a lot on like the duality and the juxtaposition of all the decisions they're having, all these tough decisions these scientists and, and military members and government people are having to make, while also not really taking one side or the other, it just kind of presents everything. It's a very presentational like type of, of story, right. which I really appreciated because by the end, it made me think more. When a movie kind of tells you what, what what is either too preachy or, or or you know very obviously on one side of whatever right. is going on, it makes it not it makes it harder to like really discuss or have certain opinions about that story because the story itself is opinionated. In some ways this the story was formatted as a debate. Right. And it, it gave yeah. you it gave you each side and like you said it it prompts you to make your own decision. Right. It yeah. It prompts you to decide what to think. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that doesn't mean that Oppenheimer, who's the the main character and right. I guess the clear protagonist of the story, right? It doesn't mean that he doesn't express his own opinions because he certainly does. He does, yeah. Um, a, a lot of times he very blankly states his opinions, mm-hmm. um, and it, he's not leaving his words up for interpretation, right? Right. He and right. and although he is a um, he's a very philosophical thinker, mm-hmm. he appreciates philosophy and theology and all those things right he's very clear with what he thinks and he's very opinionated as well right and never afraid to express that right um leading up to working through and after the the trinity test right there were a lot of um a lot of historical accounts talk about oppenheimer as being a very i think i think it being very creative and while he's very scientifically minded and he was a very a very gifted physicist especially when it came to quantum mechanics, he was also very often like wrapped up in his mind with things that people described as just otherworldly, things that like didn't really make sense to anybody else. And that was I think the movie portrayed that very well. They portrayed him as a man who was so focused but also so occupied with so many things outside of what he was doing with with whether it was the Manhattan Project or other other projects in the in the early to mid 30s that involved quantum mechanics and in physics and what he and the scientists around him were trying to solve and figure out when it came to things that other scientists had never considered before well and right? it, it, you know for somebody who was such a brilliant and bright scientific mind this movie also does a good job of kind of showing him as someone that is emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. A lot of his 
a lot of the decisions that he made were based off of his emotional attachments to who, wherever his loyalties were, right? right? The, whether that be his family, his friends, his mistress, his political, you know, um, counterparts, I suppose. He makes a lot of the decisions solely based off of that. Right. Even though he was for the most part, able to separate his scientific work because he was right. just as motivated to establish himself in the scientific community. Right. And that's part of what I love about this story is it shows that to a degree, I think he enjoyed his perceived importance and perceived power oh, yeah. in this project. It portrays him as emotionally driven, but also I think very emotionally unstable which is why, like, a lot of his, a lot of what, you know, drives him to do what he does, it makes it kind of very, not, not a, not, it's not like he's waffling from one decision to another, but you can tell based on his, like, his, his, his emotional issues that a lot of the decisions he does make can come off as brash or, or, or over the top or even, even to confusing to many people, but it is because he is so emotionally driven, but his emotions are so unstable and uncertain all the time that right. a lot of these moments throughout the film, you just, it, it, it almost becomes hard to connect with him at many points throughout the film because it just doesn't, he, he doesn't, he's not a very clear person in a lot of ways, especially with like his personal life and the people he surrounds himself with. Right. And I thought that again, the movie portrays all of this seamlessly. Yeah. There, there's never a moment where characters make decisions or do things that feel out of place or feel like they don't, they don't fit within the established characteristics that we already have of these characters. Yeah, and I think it does a great job of you know, establishing that emotional conflict in the minds of many of these scientists. Mm-hmm. And to a, a lesser extent... Um, the you know leslie groves and the other government heads yeah whatever you want to call them who are in charge of putting this project together yeah a lot of these people are kind of unsure about what they're doing right Right. they they the scientists all kind of agree on the scientific aspect of it yeah the um you know leslie groves and the other military leaders all agree on kind of what the end game is. But at the same time, I think Oppenheimer specifically, but a lot of these characters are, they're kind of acutely aware of the fact that they are most likely changing the world for the worse. Right. While also being very prideful in this right. work that they're that right. they're completing. They're also dealing with the, the conflict of, and again, I, I think... The, the screenplay and the, and the characters who kind of deal with this aspect of, you know, this this conflict, because not all the characters within the film deal, deal with it, but the characters that are dealing with the conflict of, you know, we could, by doing, by, by setting off this bomb, we could create a chain reaction that, that destroys the Earth, right? But if we don't do it, someone else will. So should we be the ones to do it first? Or should we just sit back and let someone else destroy the universe, destroy the world, while we sit back and and just hope and pray that it doesn't happen? 
right? They have to deal with the duality of that. Imagine having to deal with that kind of inner conflict. Like if I do this, I complete this task, I could kill everybody. But if I don't do it, someone else might. So how do you, like, how do you make the decision to go, okay, we're going to do it and just hope that that doesn't happen because at least it's in our hands, I guess is the conclusion you can come to with that, is that, hey, at least it's in our hands and not in someone else's. At least if it's us doing it, if we do happen to destroy the earth, at least we are the ones doing it and not a, a worse entity. Like, how do you how do you deal with that conflict in right. your head? Like, like, we've never had to make decisions remotely close to that to, to that that level of of like worldwide destruction. That's crazy. Well, and I think and there that- are these people, and and these people actually dealt with that idea. They actually had to, in their head, come up with a reason to follow through despite the fact that there yeah. are theories out there saying you know if we do this we could possibly like just kill everybody but and, it's near zero but it's near zero <laughs> the odds are near zero it's like so what you went you did a couple tests and most of them said that wouldn't happen yeah what about the one or two that did say it would well happen? even like, how do we not consider those even down to the launching of the trinity test when their um what their fission numbers were different than what they had expected. They decided, hey, we're going to run this fission test one more time right? prior to the Trinity test. The, right, prior to the actual detonation. The numbers were different, and they said, it should still work. It should be fine. And it, I you guess. Know, it's, it's strange because the Trinity test was... It was less so a, a measure of their scientific success yeah. and more so a measure of their military success right like what's the what's the actual capability of what we're about to do right they, the, the right. scientists knew okay if this doesn't work we wasted a lot of time and material but our our end goal is the same right the military leaders said okay if this doesn't work we will no longer be viewed as a military as a, power as, a, as a, yeah as a, as a threat basically because essentially they said you know, the, the Japanese will call our bluff. They will yeah. never surrender if this right. does not work. If this doesn't work. And eventually, as Oppenheimer states, mm-hmm. they dropped the bomb when the war had already been won. Right. So the, right. the surrender in the end didn't really matter. It wasn't really a... Yeah, it the, wasn't the, really the a... The test itself was not going to be the the means to end the war. Right. Right. Um what I think was interesting too is everybody working on the Trinity test was very goal oriented in that when, and, and it probably had to do a lot with the, the eventual destruction that they caused. Right. But the, the members of that, uh, of that group, once the bombs had been dropped and world war two had ended mm-hmm. in their eyes, their work was done. Right, they had done what they needed to do. Right, and in fact, a lot of them wanted to make sure that their work ended there. Ended. Like they right. wanted nothing else to do with it. Right, and then comes along Strauss and his colleagues, and right. they're thinking forward already to future wars. Yeah, they're saying, well, how we have to continue, or else the same argument as you know, or else the Germans will get it. Right now, they're saying, well, or else the Russians, or will else do the it. Russians will get it. And right. the same argument once again is. Well, it should be us rather than somebody else. Right. If Shouldn't it's going it? to happen anyway, right. it should be us. 
And to what end? To what right, right. right. To what and that's end? That's what does, the conversation yeah. became. And then you you start dealing with the idea of like, okay, so in order for there not to be an arms race, you know, do we share this information? Because mutually assured destruction is a much more in the eyes of many people, mutually assured destruction is a much better result than an arms race. Then who's going to have the biggest bomb? Right. When are they going to have the biggest bomb? How do, we, how do we determine power based on who has the biggest bomb? How about everybody has this information? That way we all know we can destroy each other with the same exact piece of equipment, and there's never a tactical advantage yeah. with nuclear weaponry. They deal with that a lot throughout the movie as well. Well, through the later parts of the movie as well, because that doesn't that doesn't become an issue, like you said, until the bomb is actually dropped, until right. the war actually ends, and then people realize, okay, well now all this stuff is out there, and these other countries are still developing things, and they're starting to make bombs that are way bigger than ours are. Like it's such a a that must have been like a I obviously we grew up way out way way outside of that part of history but at that time to be involved in those discussions oh yeah and the movie portrays it as very like normal to these people which i think is accurate because you know you you kind of if you're in if you're in that position in the power structure you just kind of have to be able to that's deal what with you those. talk about that's what you talk about yeah but like for you and i to have that to like sit down and be like all right so uh russia just did this with a 30 kiloton this and this is the kind of like I'd be shitting my pants having that kind of conversation. Yeah. Like this guy over here has that, and we're trying to decide what we should do next. Like, what are the odds we wake up tomorrow and they decide to just go ahead and use it on us anyway? Well, and that's like, that's, that's part such of a why those terrifying. That's such a terrifying place to be, like an existence to be involved yeah. in. I, and again, I think the movie the movie reflects that very well. There are so many people throughout this movie who are just like. How are we having this con? Like, this is crazy. This is crazy that we're talking like this. That's right why now. those, I guess, roundtable discussions towards the end with Strauss and the scientists are so interesting. Because, yes, they're it's their work that is being discussed. However, from you know a mindset perspective, their thinking is similar to ours, right? Like they right. they understand the power of it, but they're not. They're not always considering the the political ramifications of these discussions, right? Where right. that's the whole goal of Strauss and and his colleagues. Correct. Yeah. The also, you know, we haven't even talked with the the movie presents a lot of a lot of ethical, you know, ethical issues or conundrums. They deal with one of them. One of the big ones is the idea of you know. Killing ten thousand people to save ten million people, or killing ten thousand to save right. you know whatever the the numbers they come up with are. But again, though, it, it presents that ethical issue. As, it, it presents it as an in in ethics question, right? Like, is is killing ten thousand people to save a million the actual right decision, or do you just let fate decide and maybe maybe less people die on the other side than you actually think might? But again, it's it's it, you know, one side you're you're you have more of a guarantee of success, whereas on the other side you have less of a guarantee. But on the other side, with less of a guarantee, you're not you're not physically changing the outcome of, of what's going on, 
right? right? By dropping the bomb, you are actually changing the outcome and saying, we're going to kill... You're making that we determination are, We yourself. are going to kill this many people to almost definitely save this many people. Whereas on the other side of the equation, it's like, well, we're going to just keep... We're just going to keep letting what's happen, happening happen. And 30,000 people might die. 100,000 people might die. We're not 100% sure. But eventually it will end, and whatever it ends at, it ends at that. But if we make this decision, we're for sure, this is much more likely going to happen. Right. Again, it's, there, there are so many, like, there are so many dual propositions that the movie presents that these characters have to deal with throughout the, throughout the story. And neither of the options they have are good. Right. There's no like choice that you can make that's like, oh, this works well for everybody. Well, everybody benefits by this choice. None of them. Not a single yeah. not a single question that is raised throughout this movie is like, well, if you take this outcome, everyone will be better off. Not right. a single one. And there are multiple there are multiple questions like like that that are raised throughout this movie. Well, and they do a good job of showing that also no one decision is going to answer the question for good right so right. so the uh, original discussion is well you know we've seen we've seen hitler's willingness to take lives so we need to make sure that we don't let him have this technology oh hitler's dead so we're good to go right right and then it's well no because the japanese aren't going to surrender unless we force it right and then it's like, oh, we dropped the bombs, the Japanese surrender, the war's over, right. we're good, right? Well, right. no, because now we have to make sure the Russians don't get this technology. Right. And it's never-ending. No decision ever just solves the problem. Right. There's always the next problem. Yes. No matter what decision you make, there's always the next problem. And I think overall, I think, I think overall, the movie doesn't really present, it never presents an outcome it never presents an outcome that's just everyone benefits here. Everyone's better off here. Yes. It's it always it always presents you with a solution that creates more problems. Right. And there's no solution that creates less problems for everybody. Yeah. Everybody always has more problems throughout this film as they make decisions. Yes. And I think it it uh it feels very very accurate to the time that you know, these people were living through and well, and obviously we didn't live through it, but you also hear stories of world war two and especially the cold war where the general public was like, basically the general public was living in this fear too. Right. And the, I can't imagine the weight on the shoulders of these scientists and political oh, yeah. leaders to make a decision that is going to hopefully bring peace. Right. Because people were living in fear. Yeah, right. All the time, including them, include yeah. including them, and they were, and that's another great thing that Nolan does in this movie with his script is he doesn't show them as immune to fear, right? right. Like these right. characters have the same fears and concerns that everybody else has, mm -hmm. only the outcome is in their hands, right? Right. So we spent a lot of time. To, and this is weird because I feel like. With a lot of Nolan films, we focus less on character and writing and right. more on visuals and technicalities and technical technical um, achievements. This goes without saying, but from a from a from a a just straight up filmmaking perspective, 
This is this is Nolan's. I'm trying to. Th- I'm trying to. I'm thinking about all the movies he's made, just so I don't. This is like this is like the amalgamation of everything he's done from a director's point of view. Yes, wrapped up into one project. From literally, I like I can I can see like bits of the prestige in this movie. Yeah, from a filmmaking perspective, you can see bits of like Memento, The Dark Knight, Inception, all coming together. Yes, into this 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 beautiful visual spectacle. And we're talking so much about the characters and, and the story because it, it it is such an influential part of this movie. But it shouldn't go it shouldn't go unsaid that this movie visually alone is one of the most like groundbreaking, beautiful things you will see ever. Yes. And that's just a quality Christopher Nolan, like I think it's a standard he holds himself to. Kind of in a similar way to like what 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 Quentin Tarantino does or Denis Villeneuve, like they hold themselves to a visual standard with all their films, but they also and they they I, I know they hold themselves to a story standard as well, but to like go into a Chris Nolan project knowing that you're gonna see something that you may have never seen before, just from a visual perspective. And for that to play out and for him to succeed in doing that yeah. is such it's such a a treat for people for guys like you and me who are so into movies and so into the technical side of things right. of how things get done to see it play out over the course of three hours. This is a three hour long movie, and there wasn't a second where I was like, All right, we're in kind of a lull, you know. Dude, I went into here. this movie and I was very sleepy. And I had to pee. When I sat down, I had to pee. Oh, no. But I didn't know when the movie oh, was no. going to start. Dom, no. Bro, I didn't even think about it the Why whole time. No, the whole time. That? I didn't even think about it. Well, that's good. As soon as the movie started, until the very end, mm-hmm. didn't have to pee anymore. Wasn't tired Dude, anymore. Until- I, I have, listen, I've dozed off in a couple movies. Yeah. I know you have too. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember when you slept through about an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes of The Gentleman. Um. <laughs> That was what a good. Sucks is I love that movie. <laughs> I do too. It's um, so good. I won't lie. I fell asleep during Batman, oh, or the Batman. The Batman. Really sorry to say that. Um. Anyway, this movie. I wasn't even tempted to even no. shut my eyes for a second. It's like it is a gripping. It's a gripping film, and it's a talker. Yes. It's just, it's literally just a yes. three hour talker. All they do is talk for three hours. You right. know the only time they don't talk is when the bomb goes off. Right. And all you hear is... <sighs> Dude, the lady next to me jumped so high in her seat. When everything went quiet, yeah. I look over and Kaylee had plugged her ears and she goes, it's about to be really loud. And I said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. The lady next to me jumped nearly out of her seat, like a full, <laughs> a full body convulsion when the sound came back, when the blast hit. Oh my gosh. So this, oh, man. this movie... You kind of said it's unlike anything you've seen, and truth be told, it quite literally is. Yeah. Because no one has ever, and I mean this because it was a new technology developed for yep. this film. Mm-hmm. No one has ever shot say? IMAX in black and white. Yeah. Ever. They had to make. They, they had, had to, to develop, create a new black type and white of film. IMAX film. Yeah. And it had never been made. Before. Never. Never been made before. You know how? And what's crazy is. You really can tell. You can when you absolutely when you, you watch absolutely the film. Can. You can when you watch a movie, and they they uh, 
they digitally remove color. Sometimes you can tell. You can tell that color's been digitally removed, that yeah. they didn't actually shoot this to be in black and white. They shot it in color, and then in post, they made it black and white. Even great ones. Even like great Like Mad movies. Max Fury Road comes to mind. Exactly. Exactly. They didn't, they didn't shoot that in black and white. They shot it in color and then yes. reverted it to black and white. Like, this movie, you can just see... You can see yes. how much depth there is in the film that they use because they didn't have to touch it to create that depth. It was just right. there because they used the 65 millimeter film to make it look that and way. And how far, like, I love thinking of how far Chris Nolan has come since. I mean, it was really, it was really the Dark Knight when he started to establish the fact that his go to was going to be IMAX. Was going to be IMAX and film. Even at yeah. that time, he was doing things with IMAX that people had never done right. before. He was like breaking he, cameras, he was breaking and doing cameras shit that people were like at a what time you, like, when these IMAX cameras cost like four million dollars yeah, because there were only like six of them he in ma- existence. He made them mobile. He mounted them he in ways that had never been done, and now he's quite literally changing. IMAX. He's yeah. changing the way IMAX is filmed. Right. And not only that, his his dedication to his craft is such he made sure that the only way you're going to see this movie is in theaters. Is in theaters. He yeah. is and and it's because he cares about his art form so right. much. He right? cares about the visual medium. He cares he made about sure that Universal was not going to release any other movies and that for 100 days this is the only place you can see this movie. Yeah. Is on the big screen. On the big screen. And for almost all of those 100 days, I think he secured premium formatting. So like IMAX screens in, in like whatever, you know, whatever theater chain doesn't have IMAX but has big format screens. All of those screens are almost exclusively showing Oppenheimer. IMAX for the next 100 days, well, not, not you know, 100 days minus however many days it's been out. IMAX screens for a hundred days. Yeah, it's like eighty plus percent of their showings are Oppenheimer. Yeah, the uh, IMAX is still selling out showings of Oppenheimer, dude. Last because I looked, people realize how impactful it is to see this movie yep. on that type of screen. Yes, and it's true. It's a hundred percent true. If you don't see this in IMAX, you are doing yourself a disservice. This movie was designed to be seen on the largest format screen, which is the IMAX. There's nothing else that even comes close when it comes to screen size and proportion. There's well, literally and just nothing. Overall experience. There is there is IMAX sound. Like the sound yes, is sound. different. And IMAX, right. the IMAX screens are made in such a way that your peripherals only see the screen right like it's right and and christopher nolan and really anybody who shoots on imax yeah understands that too and that goes into their decisions as far as cinematography how they're right. going to frame each scene right where the focus is going to be because they have to know that you're going to be watching this on a larger than life screen yeah and they have to you know gather your eye where they want it right but it doesn't mean that there's a whole bunch of dead space in these shots. Right. There's a lot going there's on. So much going on. It just on. forces you to be active in your watching of. Think the film. about how many times, like Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt, was in the background. It's just sitting there. Yes, in the background of a shot, like Emily freaking Blunt. Are you in? Just because, like, that's just. But that's just that's just true to the moment of what's happening, and I think like shooting on IMAX is such a challenge. But like for Nolan now, it, it like his challenge is how can I integrate this even more into the stories that I'm telling? And I think like it's such a it's just such a 
it's again, it's such a treat for movie lovers to like see a movie from a guy like this who, like you said, he's just so he is so dedicated to what he does as a director. And he did it with a movie that like is a three hour talker drama. Like and he shot it on IMAX because he knew that would be more challenging and he knew it would, he, it would look better for it. Like, it would be better because of that. Yeah. Because he did it this way, the movie would be better. And I've never sat through a three-hour drama in an IMAX screen and been like, holy shit, I am, like, on the edge of my seat. Literally, the movie ended, and I, like, I kind of sat up, and I was like, oh, I'm sweating. <laughs> like, my ba- like, I could, like, my shirt, like, peeled off the back of the leather seat because I was, like, sweating throughout a three-hour. I just yeah. sat up, and I was like, oh, Fuck. Oh, okay. All right. Got to <laughs> adjust my shirt. Adjust the shorts a little bit. All right. Cool. Cool. You know. And then I spent the next three hours of my life with the people I saw the movie with talking about life because the movie made me cons- just made me think about my own existence. It makes you think about even the way that you carry yourself, yeah. the way that you present yourself to other people around you mm-hmm. and the effect that that has on the way that they look at you. And right. that even, you know... There's even a part, not to just get back to story here, but there's a part where Oppenheimer is like wearing his military outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the other scientists is like, what are you doing? Right. And he was like, oh, like they want us to wear these now. Mm -hmm. And the other guy was like, take it off. Just straight. He was like, take it off. That's not you, bro. Like, Like, don't don't be fake. You don't do that shit. Come on. Dude, how close were you to legitimately road tripping to go see this on 70 millimeter projection. Oh my God, dude. I was I literally like so bad. Man. I was like one, I was like one city away. Like if it were in like, if it were in like Kansas city, yeah, then I, no, no, ch- no I shot. Think, I'm not going I think to see Phoenix it. Phoenix was the closest. Phoenix was the closest. That's like a 12 hour drive. I mean, there's only what 18 in the country. Something like that. that yeah. It was, the, it was under, it was like under 30, 20 or 30 that have the IMAX projectors to actually show this on film yeah to show the how much was it like hundreds of pounds of 70 of of 70 millimeter and IMAX film dude those are selling out like people yeah. are traveling the country are to traveling go see this to go last see that. I looked um Oppenheimer is getting right now I think six screenings every day in IMAX for the foreseeable future like right. as far as the schedule goes out yeah they're getting like four to six a day yeah, because they're pulling in insane Dude, numbers. Insane numbers. Crazy numbers. And obviously every Nolan film pulls I think they insane just numbers broke, on IMAX. I think they just passed five hundred million domestically, which is pretty incredible. That's fine. I that's I hate I hate to say that Barbie is approaching a billion, but it is. You're thinking worldwide numbers is what you're thinking. Oh, is that I mean it is like listen, Barbie's Barbie and we'll talk about Barbie <laughs> eventually. Like, and I've got, dude. I, I can't tell you how many arguments I've gotten into. It's Have you watched like it yet, Barbie? Yeah. No. Oh, not yet. But I will. It's I mean, happening. I'm, it's it is happening. It's, and, and it'll it's be on inevitable. This, I think it would it'll be, be on this podcast. It would be irresponsible of us Correct. to not go see Barbie. Correct. I've I've had arguments with people, partly because I just I, I think it's it's funny for people to get up so upset about something that they feel the need to argue. But I'll say something like, I think that. The story of Robert Oppenheimer is more impactful to the world <laughs> than the story of a doll. And people get pissed. And I think that's funny. I don't know if I do I actually think that? I don't know, probably. But like I'm not like I'm not Listen, I don't give a shit no. if, like if you think Barbie's more impactful to society than uh, uh, Robert Oppenheimer was, 
cool. Whatever. It is weird. It's a weird phenomenon. But people get really bad. It's a weird phenomenon how even like professional film critics are yeah. reviewing both together. Yeah. And it's because of some weird like social media trend. Because like, of Barbenheimer, It, it kind of pisses me off. Yeah, Barbenheimer like, is weird. And then people were like, the last time this happened was The Dark Knight and Mamma Mia. And I was like, stop. That wasn't like... It's not a thing. It's also like, like nowhere. You think it's a thing. You're making a thing that's not. Right. And also it's making some weird, more than there already is. It's yeah. making some weird rivalry between Warner Bros. and Universal. Right. And that's part of the reason I think is because Warner Brothers and Universal it's all, be like, Check It's this all out. strange. It's, it is. It's, it's weird. All, it's all weird. But it's weird. It, it's weird that the first reviews of Oppenheimer were mm-hmm. like, which should you see first? Barbie yeah. or Oppenheimer? Yeah. And it's it like, bitch, ugh. how about I see both in my own time? <laughs> I haven't even really been reading reviews about Oppenheimer or watching videos, kind of because it it gave me so much to think about without having to consider the opinions yeah. of everybody else. To even have to like, to even have I to like, gone searching, go to a go to like Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes and like read through reviews. I listen, man, that movie, that movie, this movie, like, put me through some like it. Gave me an experience that did not require me to go read someone else's opinion. What I did do after this movie is go through the cast list and look through all the different physicians and quantum mechanics and people who were actually involved in the project. Like like Niels Bohr, who arguably... Arguably, arguably, the three most prominent scientists in modern, in modern times are Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, and J. Robert Oppenheimer. All three of those people are in this movie. Yeah. And all three of those people, Neil, Niels Bohr has the least least impactful. He has the least, uh, that's who Kenneth Branagh plays mm-hmm. in the film. He's not around as much as the other two are. But the fact, again, the fact that the three most impactful scientists probably ever are in this movie and are just like, two of them are just like walking around randomly <laughs> is fucking insane. Yeah. It's crazy. And the like the rabbit hole I went down after watching this movie was not about what other people thought about the movie. It was who the hell were all these people involved in this project? Because I want to know what, like what specifically they did to impact the project. Yeah. And because right? it, you almost have to, because as with any, and this isn't even a this isn't even a, a shortcoming. As with any biopic, mm-hmm. there's gonna be creative liberties that are taken because you still have to. It's still a piece of entertainment. At the end of the day, right. it's a movie, right? Right. So you almost have to go do your own research to find out who are these people? Why are they important? What did they do? Right. And most likely you're going to spend more time doing that than actually watching the movie. Right. Which is crazy because it's three hours long. But just to familiarize yourself with the story. Right. To give yourself more context than you're yes. already given. Because the movie does give you, to the movie's credit, there's a lot of context given. They build yeah. the character. Oh, yeah. They build the characters really, really well. Yes, and the movie does so much showing and so little telling. And I just love, I love being able to sit in the theater for three hours and just not be spoon fed, right? Ideas or information or context or plot. Also, I, I love that feeling. This was to a degree. This was low key a horror movie in a there lot was, of ways. There was yeah. a lot of, there was a lot of 
horror aspects oh, to yeah. this film. Um, first of all, going back to the score. Oh, um, man. Ludwig Gorenson, is that? I think that's how you say it. That's how uh, I say it. I don't know. That's how I, that's how I say it, too, um, actually. His score was tremendous. By the, so and, well and done, it, it always is, oh right? Oh, my like, gosh. He's done His score some, in Tenet was amazing. He's done some incredible work. Yes. Um, as a producer, like as an album producer, too, because yeah. he didn't get to start movies until very recently. Yeah. And... and He's great. This this so partnership good. between him and Chris Nolan, I am here for it. I love Stick it. Stick with it. Love it so much. Also, like, there's maybe two or three scenes throughout this three-hour runtime that don't have music behind it. The music propels you in a lot yes. of ways. And again, there are only like one of the greatest moments of the film is when they actually when the when they actually set the bomb off. Right. When the when the when the first a bomb actually detonates is the first like moment of stillness in the movie. It's one of the first moments where all the tap all you're seeing is what's happening in front of the characters. Right. They're not speaking. There's no music. There's no sound other than like the sound of Oppenheimer's breath as he's watching unf- as he's watching this thing unfold and then you get the you get the you get the actual explosion you know that that like comes through in that wave and it's like 30 to 45 seconds of just like just pure uninhibited visual visuality yeah and like dude i was like in tears in that like I, my i was just like so like bre- my breath was like taken away by that moment and i i it, i think no one that's what no one was trying to get out of it because that's what the characters were experiencing too, and it showed that very and well. It, it, he reflected that so well, and it was just such a, just a, an amazing but also a haunting and terrifying mm-hmm. moment. And that moment had no dialogue, no music. All it was was the camera pointing at something that was larger than life and horrifying. Right. And. It, like for this movie to be so much about the the dialogue and the conversation and how the music propels it to have a moment like that where you're just like sitting there like what the fuck like oh shit all right okay yeah it's so it's it's freaking amazing i haven't had an experience like that in a long time no in a movie yeah and i like was expecting good things from this movie but the fact that nolan just again comes in and just just shatters my expectations. It's yes. just as a film, as a, someone who loves movies so much, it was so satisfying to get out of the theater and be like, I'm a little depressed. I am thinking a lot about my life, but goddamn, that was fucking cool, man. Like that he, was he wow. did yeah, he delivered in a way that I I could not have expected. Yeah. It was um like like I said to you, when I got out of the movie, I texted you because you had seen it a, a few days before yeah, I had. Yeah. And I just said there was not a single wasted frame, which is probably the best compliment that I can give to a three-hour film. Right. Well, when I, I remember after, the, after I got out of the theater, I texted you. <laughs> I said, Dom, I didn't see Oppenheimer. I experienced. Yeah. I experienced it. And that's all I'm going to say. That's all I said about the movie yeah. was I didn't see it. I experienced it. And I think if you have, obviously this is a three hour talker. If the, if that's not your thing, it's not your thing. But if you're a person who appreciates history and appreciates, you know, scientific groundbreaking scientific discovery, 
this movie will, or even has just like a slight curiosity about it, this movie will blow you away. Yes. It really, really will. And I, I can't like, I can't level any more compliments about it. I think I'm, I think I'm about out. I don't, I can't. It, yeah. I mean, I can't really. Let's, I'm, I'm, I'll give you some final thoughts. We're yeah. sitting at about the hour mark, so it's a good time Shocker. for it anyway. Wow. We talked about Oppenheimer for um, an hour. Crazy. This, this movie was near flawless and I don't, I don't really say that lightly. Um, it was everything and more than that we hoped it would be. All of the the months and well, probably about a year. I think the first trailer came out what December? Uh, yeah, like November. Like December. the first actual trailer. Yeah, came like out fall, like early winter last year. Last and year. <clears throat> since then, this has been top of my list. It's and something we talk about before every podcast we recorded for yes. the past year. Yes, literally, we will sit down. Say, let's talk about Oppenheimer a little bit, and then we'll talk about the movie we're reviewing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for that to for that to fulfill the expectations we had built up is is a good feeling. At the at the end of the film, it is revealed to you the discussion yes. that was had by Einstein and Oppenheimer. Right. What Out they the, what they the actually talked about. Right. And for a little bit of context, at one point Oppenheimer brings the the math equation to Einstein that was showing that there was some non-zero chance that they explode the atmosphere. That if they, if they detonate this bomb, they cause a chain reaction that that literally that doesn't stop and just destroys the atmosphere. Right. And later on that discussion is revisited by the two. Yeah. And Oppenheimer says something along the lines of, Remember that equation I gave Remember you? Remember when I told you that I thought we could... Cause a chain reaction. That, that right? I thought we could destroy the world. Yeah. And his, I think, Oppenheimer's last line in the film is, I believe that we did. I believe we did. I believe... He, he, he's saying, I believe we caused... I believe we caused that chain reaction. Yes. I think that chain reaction is happening right now. And that, even though I saw it coming from a mile away, yeah. I knew as soon as they... Laid up that conversation. Yeah. I was like, "Oh shit!" And that's yeah, that's part of the realization, right? When and, when they start that discussion, when he's like, "Hey, remember when I yeah. showed you this?" It literally like gives you chills. You're and like, "Oh my!" Credit gosh. to credit to Killian Murphy because you can see the despair, yeah, and the, just the 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 pure the unhinged just tragedy in his eyes and and we could probably we could probably spend another hour just talking about that yes and and the way you know the way that his mind was being ripped to shreds right by what he was working on Mm -hmm. and by and by at that point what he had done what he had done right the responsibility he felt right and that 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 leads to a great conversation between him and in truman in the film, right? Yeah. Talking about like he, like, you know, Oppenheimer talks about feeling like he has blood on his hands, and 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 Truman basically tells him, "No one's going to remember you for doing for building the bomb. They're going to remember me." Yeah, you didn't drop for, the bomb. Yeah, I did. you didn't drop it. I did. Yeah. And they say, you know, just get that crybaby out of my office or yeah. whatever. That's actually very close. It's very based on the book that the movie's um, based on. That's a very accurate representation of what actually happened for, during that interaction between Oppenheimer yeah. and, and Truman. And it's a very, it's a very true fact, but that doesn't, that doesn't excuse 
the fact that Oppenheimer should feel responsible, right? Because without him, do we get to where we are now? Maybe. Does it look like the way it does now? Probably not. So for him to feel that that responsibility, for him to feel that that shame and that 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 torment, that inner that inner conflict is completely it's fully realized in the film and and portrayed perfectly by Killian Murphy. Yes. And this dude was like the fact that it took this long for him to get a starring role in a Chris Nolan project is crazy, but also like I'm glad in a, a lot of ways I'm glad it took till this one. And by the way, this won't be his last. No. He he no. has no. this performance for and he has put out a lot of mm. great performances. Oh yeah. A lot. A ton. This has solidified him as one of the people to get. He's oh, yeah. he's one of the A-listers now. He's yeah. no doubt. Put him at the top of the list with guys like Robert Downey Jr., who right. by the way was in this movie. Yes. Iron Man's in this movie. And what I love about what I loved about Robert Downey Jr. was we spent the better part of the last 15 years seeing him as one thing. And for him to come into this role for a pay cut, by the way, yeah. a few, a lot of actors actually took massive pay cuts to be in this movie because they recognize Chris Nolan. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Yeah. They'd pay me it whatever. Cannot, it cannot care. be understated what Robert Downey Jr. did for his it, career with this it, movie. Seriously. Yeah. It, it reestablished, and he, he never like went away. He never like became the guy. He's never like became Iron Man and that's all he's ever going to be. He never was that guy. But he did spend almost 15 years. As that guy. Right. And the fact that the first thing he kind of stepped into after his time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is this film and to do what he did. I mean, kudos to him, man. It was, it was a amazing, just a very well-realized performance. And he, he just, he captured the essence of what he was trying to portray yeah. so well. Absolutely. As did pretty much every actor and actress that's in this movie. Yeah, it wasn't a single performance. Where I was like, "Yeah, I kind of phoned that one in," because everybody attached to this was like, "Okay, I know what I'm getting myself into. I have to. I have right. to." They were they were bought to, in to yeah. the project, right? I'm Every bought in, and I have them. to. I have to. I have to. I got to do it. I got to perform here. This and they do. They all do. This movie is going to leave you with more questions about the way the world works. Yes. Than than when you came into it 100 percent, right like this this doesn't this doesn't wrap itself up because the story is still being told and that's yeah like, that's the scary part right right like this story is not over it has yeah and it never and, and you have probably that, never will be over that is like i think that's the feeling that sticks with you after right. this movie right is that the story's not over the story is still impacting us and that's today. terrifying it is and that is also what terrified Robert Oppenheimer. Right. I um, think, yeah, 100%. Listen, I don't, I, you, can you give higher than an A plus? I don't know if you can. No. But I will. I would. I mean, it'll, it's an A plus with room to spare. Yeah. Like it could, it could be worse and still be an A plus. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it could have been, there could have been a moment where I was like, hey, I didn't really get that or I didn't really like that. And I'd still probably give it an A or an yeah. A plus. Like, it's uh, it's a ten out of ten, four out of four stars, A plus, whatever grades you like giving. This movie, it doesn't disappoint unless you just hate dramas that are talkers for three hours. Then obviously this isn't for you. But like, but grow up. 
Yeah, how about how about how about be a fucking how about, adult? How for about once mature a little bit? Huh? How about be a human being? <laughs> God. Anyway, that's our review. Ooh. Oh man, we did it. Well, kind of. Like I, I could probably keep going for like, another hour. Do, this, what was that? What was that podcast where we had to re-record it in its entirety, and we did an hour, oh, and then we did another hour? I think that was. Um, was that, it? That was uh, Mad Max. Yes, Mad that's Max right. Fury Road. We had a. We still. We did one hour, and it didn't. It didn't. The you know the recording got fucked up, and we did another full hour, and we talked about that was completely like completely different, different than the first time. Yeah, we would probably do the same. We could probably a year from now do the same thing. I think we need film. to see this again. Yes. I told you I want to yeah. see a movie on Thursday. This might be it. I would like to see. Like this it again. might just be this again. I would really like to go see another IMAX screening um, of this for sure. It was. It was incredible, man. It was. It's it, so good. Worth your time. And it, it again, you will come out of it, like Dom said, you will come out of it with more questions. The, the movie doesn't like, it's not like a mystery. It doesn't like leave you with unanswered questions. It makes you question just like human human existence and what it means to be in this, this time in the history of the world. Yeah. Because again, the story is still impacting us today. It still has an effect on yes. who we are as, as people today. And I think it handles it handles that it handles that weight really well and just as a freaking man, I can't wait to see it again and just hey, before we bring put myself out, through that. Before we bring him out, yeah. I wanted to say one more thing about oh. the uh, the horror elements of this movie. Okay. First of all, I talked about the score already. Yeah. It's full of those like screechy strings yes like that type of thing. it right the score the score builds tension in ways that i don't like i haven't seen at least in a drama mm-hmm. in a long time oh yeah also a couple just fun little uh fun little easter not so fun little easter eggs <laughs> did you did you catch when uh florence Pugh's character yeah died mm-hmm. that it seemed to be that she was not drowning herself. Yeah. Rather, she was being drowned. Like you can see a hand. Yeah. Right there. I yeah. thought I saw it, and then later, I like read a thing online that was like, "Did you catch this in right. Oppenheimer?" And I was yeah. like, "Oh shit!" Right. Very subtle. Very subtle, and, might, and again, it, there, it plays into the subjectivity of the moment. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because it's in color, meaning it's a subjective. So, like, is this like, are we watching? Are we watching what Oppenheimer thinks might have happened? Right. Or are we watching yeah. the objective point of view, yeah, yeah, yeah. which by all objective accounts, she did kill herself, but like we're not watching it from an objective point of view. We're watching it from how Oppenheimer sees it play out in his own mind. And there is objectively still, I'm sure, I, I guess I haven't looked into it this deep, but mm-hmm. at the time at least, a lot of secrecy around yeah. all of these events. All of it. Every single piece of it. And I'm sure some of it is things that will never be known. Correct. Anyway, with that, with that, um, tell you, tell your friends. Hey, if you stayed this long, thank you. Yeah, you probably um, didn't, but I hope you did. Unless you're obsessed with Oppenheimer like we are, thank you. If you are one of those people, thank you for for listening to us ramble. I'm sure. I hope we discuss some of the things you want to hear other people discuss about this film. If we didn't cover it. Tell feel, us. Feel free to reach out. Listen, we we're available told you, everywhere. We told you we could keep going. Yeah. If you wanted a part two, let us know. Let us know. We'll Give us some part topics two. I don't care. that you want to hear I'll us do discuss. It. Yeah. I'm crazy. I'll do it. 100%. Um, if you had the patience to sit through Oppenheimer, and I hope you did. Yes. I also hope you have the patience to listen through this hour-long podcast. 
And if you're still here, thank you. Please tell your friends. Tell your neighbors, your sisters, cats, dogs, animals, pets. Yes, you pets can, of I mean, all can, shapes and sizes. You can hear Leo talk to us the whole oh, time. He he wants to interject and give his opinion. He has some real issues with what we have to say. Yeah. However, he's like the devil's advocate for he's everything. He's a dog. But he's a dog, so he can't really understand what he's saying. He doesn't even have um, thumbs. We do appreciate his opinions. We do. We just don't know we, we just don't understand what they actually them. are. Right. So, Leo, thank you. But we could understand yours. So let we us can. know. <laughs> yeah, we can. We can understand your opinions. <laughs> even if even if your opinion is that we suck. Yeah. Let us know. We love negative. Let opinions us know with a five star review because truthfully that would help us yeah. out a lot. In in order to reach out, <laughs> you have to go to Instagram, where we are at Front Row Media. We're something. <laughs> front Row something. Front Row Podcast. Front Row Podcast. Facebook, Instagram, Front Row Media be, One at gmail dot Front Row Podcast on all our socials right now. Yeah. Um, email us. Send us an itemized list of what Do you think. That. that would be amazing. We'll Do read the whole. We'll read the that. whole thing. We'll you can text it. us at seven one. No, please don't text us uh, unless you know have our numbers and you just want to reach out individually. We'll we'll take we'll take that into account. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, SoundCloud. Shout out to you, SoundCloud, for hosting all of our content. We really appreciate. We're probably it. places we've never heard of. Places you've, you've never, never heard, heard of. of. If you're on a place you've never heard of, and you can leave a review, leave a review. If you it get to the end way. of all these episodes and you're like, "Damn it, they never mentioned my." podcast platform you never mentioned it well well it's because you're it's on a, because we don't know you exist we don't know one yeah we don't know who you are it's not personal Sorry. it's not never personal, personal. <laughs> and also we don't know how many podcast platforms there are we just don't I haven't there's, even looked into too, it there's too many <laughs> just like there's too many youtube channels there's too many podcast platforms there's too many yes. podcasts we're just, just trying like to, there's just trying too to, many netflix shows just trying to break ground okay we're just trying to get in on that's it. what we're trying to do we love you and appreciate all of you though just know that just know that no matter what you didn't set off a nuclear bomb that potentially changed everyone's course throughout world history. That can make um, you feel better about yourself. That most likely your yeah. decisions will not impact you, yeah. the outcome of Just the remember, human race. You'll never have to make a decision that's like, <laughs> I could kill 10,000 people if I say yes to this. But if I don't say yes to this, then 100,000 people could die. Like, <laughs> So consider yourself one of the consider lucky Consider yourself ones. lucky because we do. We, we do what? And that's, I don't know. Consider ourselves lucky. We do. Yeah. All right. That's the end of the review. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.